I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Kimberly Aquaviva. She's a professor, a writer, and a scholar whose work focuses on LGBTQ aging and end-of-life issues. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on. The topic about LGBTQ um, and end of life is there's some chatter about that. And I feel like we don't talk about um, in this community enough and at end of life. And you wrote a book, LGBTQ Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care, which is fabulous. And I'm really happy that you have come on and taken to some time out of your busy day to talk to us about how we can better serve this community. Wonderful. Well, thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So what was interesting about your book um, was it's really a practical guide in transforming professional practices with people. And that's where, you know, we tend to want to separate communities. And instead, you're saying, no, this is a reminder that they're, we're just serving people. Absolutely. And I wanted people to pick up the book who might not ordinarily read a book chapter on, um, you know, care of quote unquote special populations or might not pick up a book that was specifically on LGBTQ care. That's why it's titled LGBTQ inclusive care, because I wanted folks to pick it up and learn how they could transform their care of all patients and families, and that it's not about treating LGBTQ patients differently or learning a set of behaviors to do, but it's really about how to how, how to change the way you think about all of your encounters with patients so that you are more inclusive of LGBTQ patients. So my hope is that the book will make people better clinicians for all their patients. We worked with an organization when I was still in hospice, um, this movie Gen Silence. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was really... I was really blown away by some of even our own hospice clinicians asking why we were involved Mm -hmm. with something like this. I mean, why are people having difficulties looking at this community and serving them just like everyone else? It's a great question. So the first question, you know, about LGBTQ folks feeling like they need to go back in the closet, I think uh, it really varies from person to person, community to community, and also uh, based on age. But for some of the patients who are coming into hospice and palliative care who are older, um, and let's say someone is in their 80s, they came of age at a time, oops, (laughs) when it was against the law uh, for them to identify as gay, where they could lose federal employment, where all of these different consequences could happen if they were out. So for some older adults, not all, but for some, there is a real fear about being out. And then when you think about inviting people into your home, it's the most personal thing you can do. And so already someone's vulnerable, they're dying. Um, If it's hospice or they have a serious or chronic uh, illness in the case of palliative care, and they're inviting people into their home and they're already feeling really vulnerable. So even if someone were out in their everyday life, they may be nervous about being out as they're in that vulnerable position, welcoming people into their house, uh, fearful of getting bad care, fearful of uh, other people's judgment. 
And so there may be a tendency among some LGBTQ folks to straighten up, quote unquote, put away the pictures of themselves with a partner uh, who's of the same gender, um, tuck away the books that may reveal something about themselves. Now, that's certainly not true of all LGBTQ folks. There are many uh, LGBTQ individuals who are comfortable being out when healthcare providers come into the home, uh, but, but many are not. Have we changed in America uh, with even our view uh, about homosexuality or being different? Do you, you know, you have seen this throughout your, the years. I mean, have you, have we improved at all? It seems like right. we're going to take five steps forward and then we take two or three steps backwards. Have you seen some positive changes? So I think that there, you know, as a society, we're constantly changing and we are looking at, there are new norms that are developing all the time. I think certainly there has been progress made in some areas, but because there is still so much progress to be made yet in the future, it can be really easy to think think that we're in better shape than we are. So when I was writing the book and uh, when I talk to people and I say, look, in 29 states in America, it is still completely legal to fire me from a job because I'm a lesbian. That's, pr- that's pretty astonishing. The laws of our states really say a lot about what we value and what the norms are within a particular state. So knowing that in 29 states, you can be fired just for being LGBTQ that says a lot. Now, that blows my mind and it makes me angry. <laughs> it's pre- And I think I might be living in one of those states actually. Yeah, so I, you know, I made a real conscious choice about the state uh, that my wife and I and our, our son live in. We live in the District of Columbia and we're really clear that we wouldn't live in Virginia. We wouldn't live in another state where we wouldn't have the same rights. So even though this, you know, that seems political and we're talking about healthcare, it really all dovetails together. So if I I know that I can be fired in 29 states. Um, would I be also nervous in those 29 states about how healthcare professionals might think of me when they come into my home? Um, you know, our laws really reflect what we as a society, or they should reflect what we as a society think is okay. And in 29 states, uh, being LGBTQ has been deemed not okay. Uh, so all of these things dovetail together and how our laws, how every, you know, when we think about media coverage, when we think about hate crimes. Uh, People are still um, dying, particularly trans women of color are being murdered, Uh, many being murdered. And so would someone at the end of life feel nervous being out about who they are? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And for healthcare professionals, I think most hospice and palliative care professionals genuinely want to do a good job. They genuinely want to do great care. When I speak to groups of people, uh, one of the things that I open up every talk with is I ask people to raise their hands if they grew up in a faith tradition. And usually, most of the hands go up. And I'll say, how many of you grew up in a faith tradition that said homosexuality was a sin? And again, pretty much everyone who grew up in a faith tradition, their hand goes up, except for a few like Unitarian Universalists and Quakers. There's always a couple, but, uh, but in general, most of the hands go up. Um, and then I tell people it is absolutely okay if you think LGBTQ people are going to hell. And I tell them it's okay if you think I'm going to hell. And I'll never try to change your mind. And they always look a little stunned. And I say, our focus is really on changing your behavior um, as a healthcare professional, 
And do any of you disagree with this statement that caring for someone's destination of their soul is outside your scope of practice as a nurse, physician, social worker, and everyone agrees. So I'm like, okay, we're going to focus on what you need to do while people are alive. And so I found in working with audiences, even in the Deep South, even in the Midwest, uh, even very conservative Christians in particular, people are able to, if you meet them in the middle and say, I don't need you to change your religious beliefs. I'll never, ever, ever disrespect those beliefs but I want you to not disrespect LGBTQ people when you're delivering care. So that's part of my strategy in working with healthcare professionals, but also in writing the book, trying to say, I don't need to change you. I don't need to change your beliefs. I want to change your behaviors. Explain how historical, political, institutional, and social cultural factors may influence attitudes about palliative care and hospice among LGBTQ. I mean, how, I mean, cause it, like you said earlier, it's everything. Right. Um, and, and especially with the political atmosphere that we're in, if you don't think like me, you're absolutely wrong. Um, but how does that impact, you know, the end of life with LGBTQ? Sure. So, you know, I think a lot of things end up impacting the willingness of LGBTQ people to even seek out hospice and palliative care. And it's layers upon layers when we talk about social, political, historical. Um, so, you know, as you know this, but I'll say this for your listeners, uh, that LGBTQ folks are not one distinct community that live with this little fence around them, um, not interacting or intersecting with other communities. LGBTQ people are also people of color. They are also Jewish. They are Muslim. They are, so they're layer upon layer upon layer of intersections. And so some of those things come into play when we think about, for example, LGBTQ people of color may, and this is, um, you know, I say may because I don't want it to sound like all, but may be skeptical of a kind of health care, and I'm thinking about hospice in particular, that promises to give them care that will keep them comfortable but will do nothing to cure their illness. That doesn't sound like a very great deal to folks who who historically lived through the Tuskegee syphilis experiments and understand this natural distrust of healthcare professionals who haven't always had the best um, interest of uh, communities of color at heart. So for LGBTQ people of color, that may lead to some skepticism. And then also, uh, you know, past experiences. LGBTQ people may have not had much experience with hospice and palliative care, or they may have and not had a positive experience with either a family member or friend receiving it. Um, and that's true also of anyone, whether they're LGBTQ or not, that if someone's had a positive experience with hospice and palliative care, they may be more likely to seek it out. Um, you know, again, fear around homophobia, fear of transphobia, and particularly for transgender patients, there can be a real concern about am I going to have to be my healthcare provider's teachable moment? You know, if you're facing a life-limiting or challenging illness, do you really want to spend all your time educating someone who may not understand? And for someone who has a serious illness, they don't have the extra time or energy to waste educating us as healthcare professionals. So all of these things can come into play and cause people to be hesitant to seek out healthcare. Um, and that's true of all kinds of healthcare, but in particular hospice and palliative care at a time when people are feeling incredibly vulnerable. It just makes me so sad. It really makes me sad that we're still here. Um, and that, and that's, that's all I have to say. I mean, I'm just I, listening to you and, and 
reaffirming that this is still a major issue, it just breaks my heart. Well, and and I will say, I think that most hospice and palliative care professionals are genuinely doing their best. And many are interested in providing great care to everyone, but they may not know how. So even some basics around um, how we do intake, intake forms. I know for myself as a lesbian, when I meet a new healthcare provider, I immediately assess whether or not I want to keep seeing them based on what their intake form is like. And if it really? is, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I am. So I always look first to see, do they have a non-discrimination statement for their practice or for their healthcare system? Um, but if the form, uh, it, you know, has male, female, and there's no other options. There's no. There's one question around gender. There's not not a two-step question. I immediately make some decisions there. Um, that I've yet to find a healthcare professional that does have an inclusive form around sex assigned at birth and current gender identity. Um, so I don't I don't eliminate them based on that question because I would never be able to get healthcare. But for, <laughs> but for things like um, you know the married, single, widowed, divorced before DC had legalized marriage. If I ever saw that as the pick list, I was like, yeah, no, not this isn't. It's not inclusive. If I have to write in extra information to fit myself into someone's pick list, then I don't want to write myself into fitting myself into the healthcare professional's way of thinking of me in the world. It's too much work. Well, and that, that even goes because the next question other than, you know, are you male or female yeah. is, are you married, single? Right. I mean, and, and now bef it's like, do you have a partner? Because, and I'm talking partner, my great aunt lived with her male partner yep. for 45 years and didn't, well, didn't, couldn't, didn't want to get married yep. because of a pension yep. and late, it called him my partner. Yep. And so that is becoming more and more uh, common. My dad lives with his long-term betrothed. Um, they're engaged, but intend to never marry. Um, so they live in this perpetual state of engagement uh, and they don't use the word partner. They call each other fiance, which is really interesting because they're never marrying. Um, so it's, um, so I think that for all, you know, for any configuration of genders or non-binary people coming together, um, this idea of marriage is, is a lot more, I think nowadays there's more flexibility and more fluidity. And the other thing is, what is the question? Why is the question being asked? Is it needing to be asked for an insurance standpoint? So does someone need to know because they need to figure out, are you on a spouse's insurance or not? Well, then they can ask that. Why do they need to know that? How is that relevant? And it does raise questions, too, about how do you interpret the question? So if it says married, single, widowed, divorced, many people will check off married, but they may be common law married. So if the intention of the question is to assess whether or not there's an automatic uh, default decision maker for health care, well, that question doesn't tell you that. It just tells you that this person identifies as married. Same thing with um, asking questions about sexual orientation. If you ask someone on an intake form whether they identify as heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual, it tells you nothing about their behavior. It tells you how they identify. And so when healthcare professionals want to add that question to their intake forms, I always say, okay, well, let's think about what is it you want to know? Well, I want to know because I need to know about being able to do, you know, prevention counseling and risk assessment, then ask them if they're having sex with men, women, or both. 
That's what you want to know. You don't need to know how they identify. I may identify as the Queen of England. It does not make me the Queen of England. <laughs> you know, my behavior, my daily life does not align with that. And so we have to ask the questions that really answer what we want to know. I worked in hospice for so long and was overseeing the intake department. These are things that I feel like I even conformed on because it was, that's all I know. Right. So what, what would you recommend a hospice palliative care organization? What are the things that you would take away or how would you create an intake form to, to encompass and be inclusive? So I, um, and I think it's a really simple, easy way for hospice and palliative care program to begin to be more inclusive uh, is the intake form. It's a great place to start asking two questions. One question, what sex were you assigned at birth and what gender do you identify as now? Because I think that that's a really important set of questions because I've seen some intake forms where they say male, female, transgender. Well, that's missing the point. Uh, Many people who are trans, they identify as a gender that's different than the sex they were assigned at birth, their, their identity isn't transgender. So you really need to ask those two questions. Um, also asking a question about what name would you like us to call you, which seems silly and simple, but it's important. Uh, and what pronouns do you prefer we use in speaking of you? So, and sometimes I'll hear healthcare professionals say, well, no one's going to know what that means. Well, yes, if you say, what pronouns do you use? For example, he, you know, he, him, she, her, they, them, Zezer, just list a few examples. Most people will understand that. And I think that that begins to set the tone for recognizing that every single patient that comes to you, um, they have a right to identify who they are. And so I, sometimes I'll hear a professional, when I talk to a group, they'll say, well, we ask the patients that look trans. We ask them about, yeah, we'll ask them about what pronouns they use, or we'll ask them what sex they were assigned at birth. Um, It's like, no, you're missing the point. We need to ask everyone this. Um, And asking about pronouns is a pretty normal thing now for teenagers. My son is 17, almost 18, and it is very common practice uh, at his, in his youth group, at summer camp, they all introduce themselves with their name and their pronouns, and it's not a big deal. So this is something pretty easy for healthcare professionals to learn and integrate into their practice. What training is out there that agencies can tap into? So it's a great question. Um, there are some really, really fantastic groups. Um, the LGBT Aging Project, which is uh, associated with Fenway Health, they do great work, but they work specifically with um, agencies serving older adults. And they will go in, they'll do training with staff, they'll talk to them about systematic change. Uh, and they really are the best out there. They do a fantastic job. Um, you know, I think a good place to start for any hospice and palliative care program is to reach out to their local LGBTQ community center uh, and and just reach out and say, would there be someone who could come out and talk with us about ways to make our practice more inclusive? You know, there are a lot of things that can be done easily, and I tried to spell them out in my book as much as I could, but also recognizing that for some hospice and palliative care programs, who don't have money for a consultant and they don't have money for everyone to buy the book. Uh, so I created a supplemental checklist that is, that's on the website for the book and it lets hospice and palliative care programs actually do a self-assessment of what they're doing within their agency 
And it gives them a checklist of things they can do. Um, and it's free. Where can they find that? Yep. So, um, and I will pull up so I can make sure to give you the exact website. It's www.lgbtq-inclusive.com. Um, and so when they go to that website, there's a tab that says resources and checklists. And if they click on that, um, it is the assessment tool for LGBTQ inclusive hospice and palliative care. And they can download the whole thing. It gives a detailed roadmap um, for all of the things that an agency can do. And, you know, it costs people nothing to download it and do their own assessment. In this assessment, do, do they sort of measure they, where their employees are when it comes to inclusion? So that's a great question. Because it is so tough, it's tough for people to self-assess where an organization is, because if they knew how badly they were doing, they wouldn't be doing so badly. Um, sure. So it focuses more on the concrete things like uh, non-discrimination statements, equity in their policies for employee benefits. So if so all of the things that probably seem like they have nothing to do with hospice and palliative care have a tremendous amount to do with it. Because if your organization doesn't have equitable benefits between different gender spouses and same gender spouses uh, or partners, then it's really crazy for patients and families to think they're going to be treated equitably if you don't treat your own employees equitably. And it does talk about what is included in employee or orientation um, and, you know, some things that they can embed within there. And then it asks questions about intake forms. Um, it asks questions about the electronic medical record. So, and, and then marketing and, and community engagement, which is Sadly, marketing is the one area where people seem to do a great job. They all want to market to the LGBTQ community. Um, but that's actually the last place that an organization should spend time or money. It's really on the more substantive steps. And by having an inclusive um, non-discrimination statement and embedding it in orientation, all of these things begin to lead to culture change. And at that point, once they've made those changes, um, they're going to have a better sense of how they're doing as an organization because they're going to get a sense of the struggle. You know, if they're revising the non-discrimination statement, who's pushing back against that? You know, what are what are the concerns? And so that process helps them become more inclusive. Well, when we were a part of that Gen Silence movie and a part of some LGBTQ organizations putting that on in the community, um, I was blown away with who was questioning why we're involved with that. Sure. And and that brought me uh, a, aware of how people are still feel. Can you list a few empathetic verbal and nonverbal behaviors that we can use in delivering LGBTQ inclusive care? Absolutely. Um, so empathic behaviors are ways that you can really demonstrate that you're making a connection with another person. And so, uh, you know, verbal things like silence, allowing there to be space that you don't have to fill, which can be hard for all of us, um, but giving some space, listening, um, you know, really affirming when someone shares something with you to really affirm, thank you for sharing that with me. That's really important that I know that about you. Um, Nonverbal behaviors that um, demonstrate empathy are things like touch, uh, open posture, so not having your arms crossed and kind of shut down, having an open, um, neutral facial expression. But that touch for the nonverbal, it's really important that it be used appropriately. And this is true for all patients, not just LGBTQ. Um, people without permission don't initiate a hug 
without actually asking if someone wants to be hugged or would find it beneficial to be hugged. And then in terms of facilitating behaviors, um, things like normalizing something that someone is saying or reflecting back uh, what they've shared with you so that they know that you've heard making eye contact, nodding your head, making sure that you're always on eye level. So if someone is in a bed, pulling up a chair so that you're at the same level and not standing over them. These things help to build a connection with any patient. And with LGBTQ patients, your facial expression and how you react to the things that they share with you, uh, they may be extra fine-tuned to looking for signs of displeasure or scorn. I know for myself personally, I can very much tell when someone is judging me. Uh, they definitely make a kind of a squinkly face, and you can see it. And for many of us who identify as LGBTQ, we're pretty good at spotting people that are uncomfortable with us. So learning to have that neutral expression... Um, uh, is really important. And to nod your head, encourage disclosure and not shut things down. Really, all we're talking about is treating everyone the same. You know what? It's interesting. I, yes and no. I think, okay. yeah, um, I used to think that. I did. Okay. Um, and it, through writing this book, I really came to a different point of realizing we don't want to treat everyone the same. We want to have the same um, openness to meeting them where they are. And so if that's what the same means, right? Like meeting each patient, patient where they are, absolutely. Um, but, but I think sometimes what happens is we think about treating every patient the same, but what we may need to do for patients may be different. We may need to treat people differently to be able to meet their needs. That's a great point. But, but I, I agree with you. And it's something I struggled with. Like, we need to meet people where they are, and everyone needs something different. Um, and I know when we think, when I talk to audiences, a lot of times people say, we treat everyone the same. Like, I know you're trying to, but if you treat everyone the same, you're not meeting everyone's needs because everyone's needs are different. That is so true. Wow. The crazy thing is you're a social worker in the middle of a, a nursing, nursing um, school. So how, how is that for you? Oh, it's amazing. I love it. So I was really conscious early on um, in when I decided to move into academia, I wanted to work with nurses because nurses are the most trusted health profession. Uh, there are millions of nurses. And if I want to transform healthcare, the best place to do it is educating nurses because there are so many of them. Um, when I was working in hospice and palliative care, doing direct care, uh, always worked very, very closely with nurses and had a great collaborative relationship. So working in a school of nursing, I love it. Uh, fantastic colleagues to work with. And it, it's it's interesting, too, because I was one of our first tenured faculty here. I just made full professor. And so I'm a social worker in a school of nursing, but they valued having that interdisciplinary um, collaboration. So I teach our research core courses. I don't teach our clinical courses because that would be bad uh, as a social worker to be teaching like patho or something. Um, and but the things that I bring to the school, I feel like are valued and I learn a lot from the nurses as well. So I can't think of any other profession that I would love to work with more. I love being a social worker, but I love being able to work in, in tandem with nurses. It's a great place. During this like nursing school, have you seen the program evolve and be more inclusive with um, end of life and conversations and even with, with you know, the LGBTQ? What, I mean, have you seen it evolve? That's a great question. 
So when, when I first came here, we only had about four faculty and we now have over 40. So we've grown quite a bit since I've been here. Yeah, we've grown tremendously. I think because we because of the people who are here at the very, very beginning, uh, and because our founding dean was, um, uh, her specialty was geriatrics, we always had a strong commitment to hospice and palliative care from the very, very beginning. Uh, and I know for myself, as a lesbian faculty member, have always felt incredibly supported. So in terms of seeing a change in how it's accepted, um, I haven't perceived a change because I think that we've done a great job since I've been here. We're certainly beginning to look at more ways to embed information into our curriculum um, about all populations. And uh, a real interest of mine is trying to figure out ways that we can decenter whiteness in our curriculum. So beyond just looking at LGBTQ, what can all of us do um, to be more inclusive in the way that we educate students? So I, I couldn't be happier. I feel very, very lucky to work at a place that really values the work I do. Oh, that's great. So tell, let's talk, tell people where they can find your book, which is LGBTQ Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care, A Practical Guide to Transform, Transforming Professional Practice. Where can they get this? So it is available through Columbia University Press, also through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, uh, through the online website, uh, all of them are great places. Uh, you can also have your local bookseller order a copy, which is always one of my preferred methods. Um, but you can um, order it directly from Columbia University Press's website as well. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and what you're doing. You're changing how we look at LGBTQ at end of life. And I applaud you for that. Um, and in we have to remember that no matter what group we're talking about, it is about being inclusive and meeting them where they're at. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.